At the beginning of one of his most important works, the Summa Contra Gentiles, St. Thomas seems to make in passing a very curious comment and a very bold claim. He says that the intellect of an angel surpasses the human intellect much more than the intellect of the greatest philosopher surpasses the intellect of the most uncultivated simple person. For the distance between the best philosopher and a simple person is contained within the limits of the human species, while the angelic intellect surpasses it. In other words, if we were to put the simplest person we could find next to the smartest person we could find, the difference between them would pale in comparison to the difference between a genius and even the lowliest of angels. We shouldn't overlook this insight. I think it's meant to put us in our place and to truly approach the subject of angels with great wonder. And this starting point perhaps already gives us a corrective to our typical way of imagining the angels. We might be inclined to imagine the angels just as very smart people without bodies, minds with wings. But with Aquinas' observation, we know from the outset that there is something qualitatively different about ourselves and angels. It's not just a difference of degree. It's a difference of nature. And the title of my talk this afternoon is Thinking Like Angels, The Spark of Reason and the Fire of Intellectuality. I have three parts to this paper. The first part, I'm going to compare and contrast human and angelic epistemologies, our ways of knowing. And the result will be humbling. I'm going to put us in our place as intellectually inferior even the lowest angel. In the second part, I'll also talk about the practical consequences this has for our lives, especially for our spiritual lives. That is, I'll show how we are limited within the confines of human intelligence. And in the last part, after I've humbled us all, I'm going to build us back up again. That is, I'll talk about our special place in creation and the tremendous dignity we have as human beings. I'll even comment on a few advantages we have over the angels. So part one, the difference between human and angelic thinking. A great deal of St. Thomas's theology of the angels is really philosophical speculation that flows from the nature of an angel as we know them to be revealed. <coughs> and given that there are spiritual substances that have no material components, what would it look like for them to know things? They don't have eyes and ears to take in information, so how do they know anything? The short answer is that God gives to the angels ideas from their very creation. In the words of one author, an original inheritance of knowledge. These are called innate or infused ideas. The angelic way of knowing, while very different than ours, is very simple. They don't have intellects, they simply are intellects and they contain ideas within themselves. Now, not all angels, as Dr. Doolin mentioned, not all angels have the same set of ideas. There's a kind of hierarchy we could judge. The higher angels have more comprehensive ideas. They approach, in a manner of speaking, God's own simple gaze by seeing through fewer things. God sees all things in one ultimate act of understanding. And angels don't have to go to school or Saturday afternoon workshops sponsored by the Thomistic Institute. <laughs> what they know, they know exhaustively and with complete accuracy. One small 
way to relate to this is that you may have a very smart and perceptive friend who often sees the point you're trying to make before it's even out of your mouth. That's perhaps a small glimmer of what it would be like to talk to an angel. For the angels, there's no need to explain. There's no time necessary for reflection, from movement from one point to another. They have the conclusions from the beginning. For us as human beings, things are a lot messier. At least there's more steps involved. We're a composite of body and soul, and we're born with pretty much a blank slate in terms of what we know. We have five external senses that we use to make contact with things in the physical world. We hear and we see and we touch and so forth. According to St. Thomas's epistemology, his way of explaining that we know, the five external senses hand over what they discover to the interior senses, to an inner sense called the common sense, which works together with the imagination to form an image, also called a phantasm. From this image, our higher intellectual faculties draw out a dematerialized concept, a process known as abstraction. It might sound rather clinical or boring, but it's an immensely important point to talk about. We're in New York, so we need to use dogs as the basic example, of course. <laughs> I was curious to see Dr. Doolin use Fido and Rover. Let's say I see the French bulldog in the park, and I hear him bark. Maybe I even stop to pet him. Hopefully I don't smell him, too, but there's occasionally the unmistakable wet dog smell. It's pretty, pretty easy to become convinced that it is a dog I'm dealing with. But imagine for the sake of illustration that I've never seen a dog before. Imagine what it's like for us to play with a dog for the first time as a child. You see the, the child kind of encounter the dog and wonder and then sort of pat with a very basic way of petting. Be nice. We'd go through the same process of sensation, but there'd be a little more work done internally on grasping exactly what this furry substance is. But eventually we'd be able to draw a connection between many different dogs and understand that they have some kind of shared nature. They're all dogs, not just because we conveniently group them into the same category for legal reasons, they need to be on a leash, but they all belong to the same species. And we eventually draw out an abstract comment, concept from the different things we encounter. And so we could give all sorts of examples, but living things are the best example. And this abstract concept we have is in itself immaterial because it's not reducible to material constituents. And so our capacity to abstract is a functional capacity that actually separates us from lower animals. While animals may respond in a quasi-intelligent way to the same set of images, the same set of stimuli, for example, all sheep flee wolves, animals don't have discussions about abstract concepts. There's no organization of sheep that get together to form a coalition against the global threat of wolves. <laughs> Similarly, the sophistication of our language is a manifestation of our capacity for abstraction. While animals can have quasi-intelligent symbolic noises and gestures, they don't write dictionaries. Similarly, with math, the Labrador may be able to effectively count to three or four, knowing how many birds we've shot down, and go retrieve them, but you won't ask him to calculate the proper gratuity at a restaurant. There's actually a lecture delivered on Tuesday at Yale, sponsored by the Thomistic Institute, 
which I invite you to investigate when the podcast is posted about the difference between animals and human beings by Dr. Daniel DeHaan. So that's the difference between human beings and other animals, but I want to focus on the difference between us and the angels. Angelic thinking does not involve any sensory interaction with the physical world, whereas our way of knowing is fundamentally dependent on the senses. Nothing is in the mind that was not first in the senses, with very few exceptions. Even in the case when we are well acquainted with the substances and natures of the physical world. Let's say we've been thinking about dogs for an awfully long time. We know, for example, that an adult male Pembroke Welsh Corgi should be between 25 and 30 pounds, and that the plane formed by the tips of his ears and his nose should be an equilateral triangle. That's a direct quote from the breed standard for Welsh Corgis. <laughs> Even in this case where we know our substance as well, we've been thinking abstractly about them for a long time. We may be experts. But our knowledge is still dependent on the nexus of sensory data associated with that concept. As Aquinas says, the mind must turn to the phantasm, that image that our imagination has produced. And it's very reasonable to think that this image and this way of imagining is seated in a physical organ, a particular part of the brain. A sign of our dependence on the phantasm is that we can't help but visualize something we're talking about. In short, although the highest part of our thinking is done with our souls, it's made possible by our immaterial and spiritual faculties, our minds are still dependent on our bodies even to think, precisely because the imagination is grounded in physicality. We can add to this a theological insight, that the natural limitations of our knowledge are compounded by the effects of sin, Original sin has clouded the mind, especially in regards to moral judgments. In short, our knowledge, whether learning, thinking, or remembering, requires the body. Let us be clear that the body is not getting in the way. Our bodies are constituent part of us as human beings, as a composite body and soul. We would be far worse off without our bodies, in fact. And so, this is all by way of humbling ourselves to know that we're dependent on our bodies, even for knowledge. Another consequence, of course, is the time involved in reasoning through various things. Although abstract concepts are, in a way, independent of time, the constant references we make to images gives them a temporal grounding. So, put simply, thinking takes time. Unlike angels, we need to reason from one thing to another, from premises to conclusions. And it may take us days and weeks and years of thinking about something to see its full implications. The process of moving from one thing to another, joining concepts together and dividing others, moving from premises to conclusions, this is called ratiocination, in the, Latin, the Latinate word for reasoning, from which we get the word rational. While the angels simply are intellects, or intelligences, <coughs> were properly called rational, rational animals. Part 2. Human Limitations and Ontological Humility I think talking about the differences between human and angelic knowledge like this can be very fruitful, not only because it's interesting and delights the mind, 
but because it helps us to know our proper limitations, and so can be useful even for our spiritual lives. At times, there can be a tendency towards angelism, desiring to know and live in a way negligent of our body and negligent of our truly human limitations. No matter how much we would rather be like angels, we're not, and we're not going to become them, Pache, the theology of It's a Wonderful Life. When the bell rang after the refreshments, no angels got their wings. (laughs) The philosophical consideration of angels can lead us to a kind of ontological humility, a humility prompted by knowing our limitations as human beings. So what are some practical conclusions? Well, our knowledge is not completely comprehensive. Unlike the angels, our knowledge is perfectible, able to increase in its sharpness and clarity. Things can increase and become more clear to us over time. I think one of St. Thomas's most keen insights and most profound understatements arises when he talks about the difference between the way angels and human beings get to heaven, reach their eternal destiny with God. The angels were beatified, brought into the ultimate vision of God after making one free act of choice for God, one act of charity. They weren't created in heaven, in heavenly glory, but brought into it after that one act. This was the same time, by the way, when the demons chose against God. And so St. Thomas says that while angels attained their end through one movement, we, on the other hand, attain our end by many movements. What an understatement. But it's consoling to remember on a sad and tedious day that this is simply part of what it means to be human. God draws us to himself gradually. And while that's applying to going to heaven, it's also very insightful for us to consider for our intellectual limitations. We acquire knowledge slowly and by many movements. There's a gradual perfecting and sharpening of our knowledge. Also, because of our dependence on the body, we often learn best by closely associating abstract concepts with strong <laughs> mental images. And this is something that uh, the medieval uh, copiers of manuscripts knew. Well, really, it was a, there was a culture of this in the Middle Ages. There was a way to have memory techniques where you memorize, let's say, the scriptures or certain concepts by associating each of those with a very strong mental image. You know, it's the things that stick out as um, images we almost have a strong physical reaction to. Those are the things we remember best. And so that's part of how we're able to explain all of the interesting uh, doodles we find in medieval manuscripts. Some of them are actually memory techniques. There's a great book by Mary Carruthers on this, um, The Book of Memory, which I really suggest. Compared to angels, our knowledge is not comprehensive, and so it's a work in progress. We can also be mistaken and unclear about a wide range of very important things. I'd just like to mention two areas in particular. Knowledge of ourselves and knowledge of God. We need to be aware of the fact that as human beings, our self-knowledge is very poor. For example, we're often not aware of the way in which our passions are affecting our behavior. For example, hypothetically, maybe you're not a morning person. And that's okay as long as you're aware of it. But if you're completely unaware of how your mood is affecting your reasoning, 
you could make some pretty poor decisions. The rest of the world would be much better if you just decided to have a cup of coffee, perhaps. <laughs> That's a very basic example, but here's a more profound one. We cannot see our souls directly in a way that an angel has a direct knowledge of himself. We can't gaze upon the surface of our souls and see the grooves of virtue and vice. Also, speaking about the spiritual life, we cannot simply look at our souls and see whether we are in a state of grace or not. The life of grace remains as a hidden treasure, as mysterious and numinous as the God who is its direct cause. We cannot have absolute certainty about being in a state of grace, but rather a workable, probable a working probable certainty. And so this really comes as the result of a well-formed conscience and a basic habit of reflection upon our actions. In short, of our, in short our self-knowledge is something that comes to us piecemeal. The Lord often only shows a small part of our true selves to us at a time. I think if you reflect on this, it's ultimately a great mercy that the Lord makes our faults not immediately evident to us all at once, but shows us sort of one when we're ready to handle it, or when he's asking us to work on that particular fault. Sort of like a friend who gently nudges us with the truth, rather than overwhelming us with the facts about our weakness. If you'd like to look into more about uh, the philosophical notion of self-knowledge, I really recommend a book by Therese Corey, who teaches at Notre Dame, on human self-knowledge, Aquinas on human self-knowledge. Our knowledge of God is also far more limited than the knowledge that angels have. The angels have a more perfect knowledge of God, says St. Thomas, since they know him through more noble effects. This directly connects to self-knowledge, and here's what I mean. That an angel knows God exists by simply looking at itself. Now, it's possible for us to discover that God exists by human reason, we investigate the effects of his creation in the world and come to a realization that there must be some first cause of them all. Again, we're dealing with knowledge we get through our senses. St. Thomas says that an angel knows God through its own spiritual nature. It's far easier, then, for an angel to go from its own spiritual nature to a knowledge of God's existence than it is for us to reason from the visible and sensible effects in the world to the invisible God who made them all. That's quite a movement, actually a series of movements, constructing an argument with several premises after a lot of reflection. And not everyone has the leisure or the aptitude or proclivity to engage in that kind of reflection. So in fact, most people likely believe in God through the grace of faith rather than through philosophical demonstration. All of this is really just to say we stand in great need of God's help to know the important basics about him. Part three, the spark of reason. So now that I've humbled us as human beings and marked out our limitations, it's important to build us back up and discuss our incredible dignity. Although human and angelic knowledge are vastly different, according to the sketch I've just given you, there's a certain way in which our knowledge, our way of thinking and knowing, approaches that of the angels. How exactly? Well, there are certain fundamental principles that we can grasp 
without any prolonged reasoning needing to take place. We grasp them immediately and intuitively. St. Thomas has in mind what are called the first principles of reason. For example, from the very dawn of our consciousness, as a little baby interacting with the world, smashing toys together, whatever we do as little babies, we arrive at an immediate knowledge that being is not non-being. That a thing cannot be and not be at the same time and in the same respect. And that's, well, that's rather speculative and philosophical for a baby to realize, but it's a little <laughs> more intuitive, and that's precisely the point. Being fed and not being fed are not the same thing, <laughs> and our cries demonstrate it. Having the pacifier and not having the pacifier are not the same thing. We might add to this the principle of sufficient reason as well, that for any effect there must be a cause. When there's a loud noise, even a little infant looks towards where the sound is coming from. What was that? He doesn't need to be taught that effects have causes, that noises have noisemakers. The baby doesn't shrug its shoulders and say, wow, another inexplicable, spontaneous phenomenon. <laughs> St. Thomas also has in mind the most basic moral principle, that is, good is to be done and evil is to be avoided. So these are things that do not need to be explained or proven. In fact, they do not even need to be reasoned to. We simply grasp them. In one of his works, The Disputed Questions on Truth, Aquinas uses the first principles as a way to get us to begin to understand what it's like for the angels to know things. He says, Just as our intellect has in itself these principles, so too does an angel have in itself all those things that it naturally knows. And since the knowledge of principles in us is the highest of our knowledge, it's evident that in the highest part of human nature, we in a certain way border on the lowest part of angelic nature. Divine wisdom joins the ends of the firsts with the beginnings of the seconds. Hence, just as we understand principles by simple intuition and without discursive reasoning, so the angels understand all things which they know, and thus they're called intellectual, and possess the habit of principles, <coughs> excuse me, and the possession of principles in us is called intellect. So I'm going to sort of unpack that, that large and powerful insight. So we have a very modest participation in the intellectuality of angels. Recall that I said the word rational is a much better description for human beings than intellectual. We're not exclusively intellectual in the sense that we're pure intellects, completely independent of a body. As human beings, we really just have our foot in the door of the intellectual realm of God's creation. St. Thomas summarizes this with a nice image, the image I used in the title of this paper, where he compares a spark to a fire. He says that the power in us to apprehend first principles without reasoning is fittingly called a spark. Just as the spark is a small portion flying from a fire, so too this power in is some small participation of intellectuality with respect to that to which intellectuality is in an angel. 
And even on account of this, the superior part of the rational spark is said to be what is highest in the rational nature. So the spark of reason is a small sharing in the fire of intellectual life, in the strict sense. Aquinas is drawing on earlier sources for this image, but I think it's perfect, because on the one hand, it humbles us, because it makes us realize that our intellectual gifts, our natural lights, are a mere spark in comparison to the blazing furnace of the angelic intelligences. On the other hand, if you think about it, a spark is rather important. In a way, it's all you need. Think of what a cold camper would give for a match or a lighter. So too, in the wilderness of the corporeal world, we have a small participation, yet a very profound participation in the intellectual world. And in a way, it's all we need. It's fascinating and delightful in itself to think about how we scratch the surface of angelic nature. However, Aquinas gets excited about this point for a deeper reason. The spark of reason is a kind of foundation for all of our knowledge. In another place, he uses a kind of organic analogy. He says that the principles of reason in us are a kind of seedbed or nursery, literally seminari, from which we get the word for seminary. The principles of reason are a seedbed for the whole of our subsequent knowledge. I don't know, the, the image that comes to mind for this is the, the kind of dystopian science fiction movies where they have just like a few plants left and they need to get to a habitable environment. So like in WALL-E or Interstellar, they have to continue on with just the few seeds of hope they have. If we couldn't distinguish being from non-being, we couldn't learn anything. And if we didn't have the first principle of practical reason to do good and avoid evil, we couldn't have any moral discussions. We think moral discussions are hard enough today, but it would be utterly impossible without the first principle of practical reason. Even moral reasoning, thinking about what's good and evil in our, in our own minds, would sort of be dead in the water. But, with the first principles, we in a, way, in a way already possess the conclusions. The principles hold their conclusions in potency, potentially, as a seed contains the whole of a plant. So thank goodness there are things we can simply grasp without any argument or even reasoning. St. Thomas won't let us get too carried away, though. Because in several passages where he is, explains how human reason borders upon angelic knowledge, he's quick to qualify that even to have the first principles, we need to have some sensory experience. That's why I give the example of the baby, sort of interacting with the world. In other words, we're not born with innate knowledge like the angels. We have to interact with the world in some small degree before these principles can be formed. We have to have, as he says, some sensory perception. So even at our best, we don't really think like angels, because our minds are set up in a different way altogether. And again, it's not a difference in degree. There's a qualitative jump up. The smartest genius will never outwit the lowest angel. There's simply no competition. They wouldn't be good chess partners. A moment ago, I claimed that we only have our foot in the door of the intellectual domain of being. But St. Thomas also explains that although we only have our foot in the door, 
this small sharing is what's most characteristic of us. We are shaped at the core of our identity by what is highest in us. That is very counterintuitive if you think about it. For example, let's say you just know a little bit of a foreign language. Well, you, would have, you would have put this at the top of your LinkedIn page. You know? <laughs> Knowing a little French doesn't open up the entire country of France to you. It just gets your foot in the door. So if someone asks what you do, you wouldn't say, well, I'm a tax attorney, but I know ten words in French. <laughs> but somehow, with this setup, our foot in the intellectual realm of reality does count for something, even though we're only amateurs, intellectually speaking, avocational, angelic thinkers. Towards the end of the Nicomachean Ethics, Aristotle says that we should strain every nerve and strive to live according to what is highest in us. Very famous passage, almost poetic. By living according to what is highest in us, and most characteristically human, we also, oddly enough, reach out towards what is divine and immortal. So commenting on this point, St. Thomas says that although reason in us is small, it's best. This small part, he says, is better than all the other parts in man. It surpasses everything else in us in power and value. Our share in intellectuality characterizes us and belongs to the core of who we are. Although St. Thomas is talking here about our natural human powers, his remarks converge in a fitting way with the language he uses to describe grace, which is a theological matter, supernatural reality. Elsewhere, he says that grace is a sharing in the divine nature. And even though we share in the divine nature in a limited and imperfect way, that little bit of God's life in us is a much greater thing than all of the rest of creation, taken naturally speaking. To go back to the baby. The sanctifying grace present within a baptized infant, for instance, is greater than all the stars in the universe. And I think this is where we see the real privilege and blessing of having our foot in the door of the intellectual domain of reality. It's our spiritual capacities, our intellectual and volitional, our willing capacities, that leave open the possibility of receiving God's grace and salvation. Because we are rational and intellectual, God can bestow His grace upon us and dwell in our minds and hearts by faith and charity and so direct us to heavenly glory. While grasping the truth brings great delight, the least knowledge of the highest things brings the greatest joy, it's only possessing God himself through the beatific vision that brings complete and perfect happiness. You can see how, even though our intellectual life is very limited in comparison to the angels, in regard to the most important thing, that is eternal life, and the sharing of the divine nature, there is a way in which we stand as co-equal partners and inheritors with the angels. Our place in heaven may not end up being right next to the cherubim and seraphim, in the angelic real estate, but it will be the same heaven we're meant to occupy. Angels imitate God through exclusive and lofty spiritual intellectuality by being pure spirits. 
Yet our human nature, oddly enough, even affords us some advantages over and above the angels in certain ways. There's several clear theological reasons we ought to have a kind of pride in our distinctive human status in creation. First and foremost, God has taken on our nature. The eternal Son of the Father did not become a species of angel, but he became man. He did so, as we know, to be able to die on the cross and rise again, and so save us from sin and death. And he's not just taken on our nature temporarily, either, in the way that angels assume a body in order to deliver God's message in the Bible. Christ has ascended into heaven and firmly planted the flag of our humanity in eternity. And another clear theological reason to be proud of humanity is that Christ took flesh from one of us, from the Blessed Virgin. And by associating her intimately with his incarnation and mission, exalted her above the angels. And so we rightly honor her as the queen of the angels. And so we know there are at least two humans who hold a higher place in heaven than even the seraphim. To these important theological reasons, we can add at least one philosophical reason to be proud of our human status and its distinctive and special place in creation. And it's with this thought that I would like to end. Our composition of body and soul present many challenges, I've mentioned, such as the fact that our thinking is always dependent on the body. But in another way, this can be seen as an advantage or an immense dignity, because we sort of summarize creation within ourselves. We're the only substance that God has made that has a foot in both realms of creation. Within our very selves, and in the process of our knowledge and thinking, there is a continuous interplay between the material and immaterial sides of creation. St. Thomas, drawing upon an older tradition, calls the human being the horizon of creation. Very interesting title. The horizon, of course, is where the sky meets the earth. While the human soul is the least of spiritual things, the human body is the highest of material things. Because the spiritual soul communicates its dignity to the body, so to speak. So, although this world contains many wonders we can gaze upon, the human body is the most spectacular and precious thing we can see. <clears throat> Exploring Aquinas' angelology just this little bit helps us to take a certain delight in the highest things. The illumination of higher things sheds light upon our own human nature. We're immediately humbled by realities higher than us, but we can have a kind of confidence that the small spark of intellectuality God has naturally endowed us with counts for a great deal. In the words of the psalm, What is man that you are mindful of him, and a son of man that you care for him? Yet you have made him little less than an angel, crowned him with glory and honor. Thank you.